Good morning, faith family. So glad to be with you this morning, privileged to lead us in our study of God's word together. So if you would please take out your Bibles or open up your smart device in your Bible app and navigate over to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, that's where we'll be this morning. Also wanna wish you all a happy new year, everyone here and everyone joining us by live stream. We hope that you've had a good holiday season with friends and family. Pastor Matt is actually still enjoying some time with family and he'll be preaching for us again here in a couple of weeks when we begin a new sermon series studying the book of Genesis together. So hope that you're looking forward to that. But today we'll have part one in what is a short two-part sermon series that we've entitled Good Work. And I think this is an appropriate series to begin a new year, this year of 2022, because a lot of us have spent some time over the past few days or weeks considering what good work we would like to accomplish in this new year. And we kind of set our goals for those works in the form of new year resolutions. Because most of those resolutions are kind of focused on making us better in some way, helping us to accomplish good either in our lives or through our lives. We wanna be healthier, so we eat better and we exercise. We wanna be able to give more or put our money to different uses. We uh, commit to paying down our debt this next year. We wanna get more discipline, so we kind of get organized in some new ways, or perhaps we wanna spend less time at work in our careers and focus more time on family all these resolutions, different ways that we're seeking to accomplish good. And for any of you here that you've been one of those that's been thinking about what resolutions you might make for this new year in order to see good accomplished in you and through you, then today's message has some good news for you. And that good news is that God also wants that for you. He wants good for you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to become better. He wants to accomplish good in your life and through your life. And we'll see that that's true by reading together our text for this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along with me. The Apostle Paul wrote, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. 
So there it is right there, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared ahead of time for us to do. And to some of you, that sounds like excellent news this morning. You want to do good this year. You want to be better. God also wants that for you. He has good works for you to do. And so you're ready. Let's just hear it. Okay, Chris, give them to me. I'm gonna write them down. You didn't give them to me in blanks. I noticed that, but I'm gonna write down the list of all the good works that we're going to accomplish and I'm gonna start marking them off. And the reason why I know some of you are like this is because you're like this like in every other aspect of your life. Like in your new year resolution and preparation for it, what you've done is you've downloaded a new app or you've gone and bought a new notebook that has the year 2022 emblazoned on the front and inside it's an organizer. And it's got a calendar and it's got all your months and your weeks and your days planned out. And each day has a little place for you to make a list and it's your to-do list for that day. And you're committed to this year, maybe each day, or maybe at the beginning of each week, you're going to sit down, you're going to make your to-do list every day. And you're so excited because then on that day, you'll just start doing the list. And as you go along and you accomplish those things on your list, you'll get to mark them off, feel a real sense of accomplishment. You might even find yourself doing something on a day that wasn't on your list. And when that happens, you're going to run back to your list and you're going to add it. And after you've added it to your list, you're gonna mark it off. And you're gonna feel really good because that is most excellent. So you were so excited about these good works, you want that list of things to do so that you can start doing them. But when Paul writes about us having good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, us being God's workmanship, he doesn't have a list in mind for us. Now Paul's not thinking of a list, he's thinking of a life specifically our life with God, because that's where we have to begin this morning is with the truth of this. God made us for life with him. God made us for life with him. Now, I don't wanna steal too much from what Pastor Matt is gonna cover for us in the first couple of chapters of Genesis here in a few weeks, but I will just remind us that when God made the first man and woman, when he made Adam and Eve, and he put them there in the Garden of Eden, it it was so that they could see and they could experience his majesty and his love, and that they could enjoy fellowship there with him throughout their lives. The Westminster Shorter Catechism kind of applies that thinking to all of us in response to its first question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That was true there in the garden. Adam and Eve created, put there in the garden to glorify God and also to enjoy him, to enjoy their time with him to spend time with him, to have a life with him. It was true for them then, and it is also true for us today. Jesus even identifies that that's the reason he came here to earth. He came here because we were made for life with him. He said this in John 10, 10, where he said, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. But that kind of leads us to ask a question. And that question is, if we are made for life with God, that's why he made us, that's how he made us, then why is it that Jesus had to come in the first place in order for us to have this life and to have it in abundance? And the answer to that question is found just a few verses back right here in Ephesians 2, chapter one, where Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
Why did Jesus have to come so that we could have the life with God that we were made for? Because we were dead. We were cut off from our life with God. Why were we cut off? Why were we dead? Because of our trespasses and sins, all the different ways in which we've disobeyed God. And we're pretty familiar with that concept after all from some other places that Paul wrote, specifically what he wrote in the book of Romans in chapter six, verse 23, when he said that the wages of sin is death. We know that sin leads to death. But when we think about it, we're normally kind of talking about like an eternal destination, eternal death. That's what we think about, eternally being separated from God. Or maybe we think, I mean, maybe it has something to do with kind of the physical death that we'll all experience at the end of our lives at some point. So maybe it's a physical death, but that ultimately could potentially lead to eternal death, eternal separation from God because of our sin. Now, Paul certainly had those concepts in mind. After all, he wrote them in the book of Romans. But here in Ephesians 2, he is thinking about something very different. He's not considering a future physical reality. He's not thinking about an eternal spiritual reality. What Paul is writing to his readers about is something that they've actually experienced in the here and now. It says, you were dead. Not you will be dead. You were dead. It was true for you now. Now, of course, you may take a moment and kind of look around at yourself, maybe give yourself a good pat down, check your breathing, take the pulse just to be sure and come to the conclusion that, but um, I'm alive. And yes, of course you are, of course you're alive. But look at how Paul described the way his readers were living. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. The life that you were living was in trespasses and sins. It was in death. The result was that you were as good as dead. Yes, that physical death was coming and that eternal spiritual death was coming. And there's no amount of living that you could do to change that. Why? Because of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Like that's what's deserved. And all of our living in that sinful state and all of the living in our trespasses and sins, there's nothing we can do to actually bring about life within us. I have kind of a weird fascination with zombie movies. And it has to begin with like George Romero's groundbreaking, The Night of the Living Dead. And I think about the zombies in that movie when I think about this text, because you have these people kind of walking around, they're moving, they're making noises with their mouths, they're doing different things, they're trying to get people and get inside places. Like they have some semblance of life about them, but they're dead. The whole time that they're moving around, they're just rotting away from the inside out because there's no true life within them. Yes, they may take steps, but every step that they take is just leading them toward the ultimate reality in which their physical form will kind of catch up with what they really are. They'll finally become worm food again. And I think about that because I think it serves as a good picture of what it looks like for us to be dead in our trespasses and sins. Like, yes, we are living We have semblance of life around us, but it is not the life at all that God made us for. 
We are spiritually rotting away from the inside and every step that we take in this supposed life is leading us toward the ultimate reality in which we will experience eternal death. We're the living dead. And that's not just true for you, it's not just true for us, this is true for everyone, everyone in the world. Why? Because of the ways we've lived. We've lived in our trespasses and sins. And Paul kind of describes more about what that looks like in which you previously lived. And he says, we lived according to the ways of the world. This is the way the world is, the way the world acts. It's according to the trespasses and sins. It's according to disobedience against God. But of course, we know that that hasn't always been that way. When we go back to the creation narrative in the book of Genesis and we see God create everything out of nothing and he looks at what he has made and he says, this is good. But then of course, Genesis three happens. Sin enters the world. And that sin now corrupts everything that was good. So now that was created in order to proclaim the majesty of God, now the ways of this world are not marked by that goodness. It's now marked by trespasses and sins. And when we look there at Genesis 3, we see the one that is leading the way, the serpent, the enemy, Satan, the one that Paul says we are also living according to. When he says that you were living according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. This spirit, this spiritual being, this head in charge demon, he is at work in this world. And it's not good work. His purpose is disobedience. His purpose is to bring about sin because he wants us dead. Not because he's particularly concerned with us, but because that's what God doesn't want for us. God made us for life with him. So Satan wants us dead to try to stick it to God. Those are his attacks. And we're caught a bit in the crossfire. We're the pawns at play. But before we throw a pity party for ourselves, say, man, we're born into the sinful world. It's just the way of the world is marked by trespasses and sin. And we've constantly got Satan at work. Like he's a ruler trying to exercise his false authority in order to make us disobedient against God. I mean, how are we supposed to fight against that? Like before we throw a pity party for ourselves over those things, we have to see that we're also dead in our trespasses and sins because that's what we wanted. In the next verse... Paul wrote, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, when we are tempted, we look at that forbidden fruit and we want to eat it. That's what appeals to us. It looks good to us. And in our dead sinful nature, we want it. Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's who we are. We're incapable of good work. In our living dead state, we might stumble in such a way that appears to be in kind of a positive direction, but the trajectory of our lives only has one outcome. 
that eternal death. And the reason why is because that's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. That's why Paul describes us as by nature, children under wrath. Talking about God's wrath, God's righteous anger and judgment toward us. Now we don't like that when we think about how it applies to our lives, but we like it when we think about how it applies to other people. Because we can think about some people in our lives, in history, in this world currently, that we think they deserve God's wrath. I hope he pours it out on them. But of course, the truth is we have to look at ourselves and see that we are just as sinful and we are just as deserving of that wrath. God made us for life with him, but we have chosen his wrath instead of his love and there's nothing we can do about it. That's the thing about the living dead. There's nothing they can do to actually bring about new life within themselves again. And that truth is what we're talking about when we talk about our need for a savior. There's nothing we can do for ourselves. We need someone to come and save us from this death. We need someone to come and make us alive. Paul echoes that cry for us in Romans 7, verse 24, where he wrote, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer, of course, is God. He made us for life with him, but we chose death. It's a problem we can never fix ourselves. So God made us alive with Christ. God did the work. He made us alive with Christ. And the drama that plays out in just the first three verses of Ephesians 2, there's only two characters, Satan and us. But then comes verse four, and God enters the story. And with him, he brings his mercy, his love, and his grace. Paul wrote, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Now let's make sure we fully understand what these attributes and characteristics are of God that he's kind of bringing forth in the story here. If we want to define mercy, here's the definition I'm going to give us. Mercy is not getting the punishment you do deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you do deserve. Grace is getting the blessing you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you do deserve. And grace is getting the blessing you don't deserve. Here's how I think about this. I have a nine-year-old son named Haven. Some of you have or know nine-year-old sons, and you probably know that nine-year-old sons are not known for being the cleanest people in the world, and that's true of my son. And so one of the things that we have to do is help Haven understand that there's an expectation that his room needs to be clean. And there are plenty of times where we have to give him the very explicit command, Haven, go clean your room. And Haven will say, yes, sir, and he'll go upstairs to his room and he's up there for a while, and I'll be doing other things, and then I'll think about it, and I'll call out, Haven? He'll say, yes, sir. I'll say, have you cleaned your room? And there will be a pause. And in that moment, Haven is making a choice. Sin, not sin. More often than not, Haven will admit, he'll say, no, sir. I'll say, Haven, what have you been doing? And he'll say, playing. 
I'll say, okay, Haven, come here. He'll come downstairs. I'll say, Haven, I know that what you want to do is to play. But what I want you to do and I'm telling you to do is to clean your room. And he'll say, yes, sir. I'll say, will you do that? And he'll say, yes. I'll say, Haven, understand this. If you do not clean your room, there is going to be a punishment. And then I'll make him repeat it. Haven, what did I tell you? He says, you told me to clean my room or else there will be a punishment. That's right. You understand? Yes, sir. Okay, go clean your room. Haven will go up there. He'll be gone for a while. I'll go about other things. And then I'll remember and I'll say, Haven? And he'll say, yes, sir. And I'll say, have you cleaned your room? And there will be a longer pause. And Haven will say, no, sir. I'll say, Haven, come here. Haven will come downstairs and he'll stand in front of me. Now in that moment, what does Haven deserve? A punishment, right? It was very clear. I set the expectations. I gave the command. I explained what the consequences would be if the command was not fulfilled. He has not fulfilled the command. Therefore, what he deserves, what is right, what is just, is that he receives the punishment. But in that moment, instead of punishing him, I could choose to respond, that's okay, Haven. I forgive you. I'll give you another chance. That is mercy. I'm not giving him the punishment he deserves. But then I could take it even further and say, that's okay, Haven. I forgive you. I'll give you another chance. In fact, let's go up there together and I'll help you clean your room. Now, parents, when you say that to your child, what does that mean? Who's doing the cleaning? You are. That's right. So I'm going to go up there with you. You'll be with me. I'm going to clean your room for you. And not only that, buddy, then after that, let's go to Brewster's and let's get chocolate and peanut butter milkshakes. How does that sound? That's grace. The mercy is, I forgive you. I'm not giving you the punishment. The grace is, I'll do it for you and I'll give you a reward of chocolate and peanut butter milkshakes that you've done nothing to deserve. That's grace. Mercy and grace. And what would lead me to respond in this way to Haven? I was very clear with him. I set the expectations. I explained the consequences. All those things were deserved. But what would lead me to give him mercy and grace? Except my love for him. I love him. I'd rather give him, give him mercy and grace than the punishment. That's what I want to do in that moment. And if I can be like that, how much truer is it that God not only can be, but is like that? Because that's how Paul describes him. He is rich in mercy, just full of chance after chance after chance, forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness. And he has a great love for us that leads him to make us alive with Christ. And he saves us by grace. He gives us salvation. He gives us life, life with him that we don't deserve, but it's the life that he made us for. And it's what he wants to do. He's just, and his wrath is justified, but his mercy is more, and his grace is more, and his love is more. So even while we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. 
You know, I think about some of the common responses that we can have toward the concept of the wrath of God. Like, we don't like it. We don't like the sound of it. We don't like the way it makes us feel. It seems harsh and hard and horrible. And I kind of imagine telling those things to Jesus himself. And then Jesus looking back at us with all the mercy and grace and love in his eyes and him saying, yeah, tell me about it. Because as we know from Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he took God's wrath. He took our punishment. He took our place. He died. He became dead. But he didn't stay that way. He rose from the grave. Listen to Paul, how Paul describes what God the Father did in the life of God the Son, starting in verse 20 of Ephesians 1, just a few verses before this. We read that he, God the Father, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. God the Father raised God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, but he didn't stop there. He then raised him up to the heavens, to his right hand, to sit there in the throne room, to do what he is is destined to do, to rule with authority over everything and everyone for all eternity. He rules over this world and its ways. He reigns over Satan and his false authority. He has authority over us, not to subjugate us, not to imprison us, not to oppress us, but to free us from the stranglehold that sin has on our lives, to take us who were dead and to make us alive again. And see what follows, what further grace God exhibits after he makes us alive. When Paul writes in verse Six, that he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. See, God here doesn't treat us as children under wrath. He treats us as children under his mercy, his grace, his love, his life. He treats us as his son, just as he raised his son up to sit beside him with all authority over all things. He raises us up with Christ. Yes, it's a future reality, but it's also a present reality for the believer. He raises us up. Jesus, who has ruling over the ways of this world, over the supposed authority of Satan, over our wants and desires, God seats us next to him, giving us new life with him so that we no longer are bound to the ways of this world. We no longer live according to Satan's rule. We don't even live for what we want anymore in our flesh. We live now for what God wants and the spirit he has given us that is working within us and through us. That is what's true for all of us who have believed. We were dead, but now we are alive with Christ. But I know that there are some here today for whom that is not yet true for you. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins, living according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, 
according to your own fleshly desires, the inclinations of your flesh and thoughts. But today it can be true for you. You can be made alive with Christ today. Paul describes how it happens in verse eight. He says, for you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. You can be saved today. How? Through faith. Believing that this is true. Repenting, turning from your fleshly desires and trusting and the work that Christ accomplished through his death on the cross. That's what faith is. But faith isn't something that you have to bring to the table today. It's not something that you have to work up inside yourself to believe. Because here when Paul writes that you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When he says this, he's referring to not just the salvation, not just the grace, he's referring to the faith. Faith is the means of salvation, but faith is also part of the gift of God. He gives you the faith. Some of you are sitting here today, maybe you've heard this before, you've never believed it, you've never been interested in it, you've always tuned it out, and yet today for some reason, you are sensing a rustling within your heart. You're sensing just a question that it is right now, just a, a possibility, maybe this could be true. Maybe God does love me, maybe I could believe this. If that's you, that's because God is giving you faith. It's happening now. And you can believe you can just receive it. Think of all the gifts that have been exchanged over the past few weeks and the way we talk about some of those gifts of lists of who's naughty and who's nice. But God is nothing like that because the reality is we're dead. We can't do anything to get ourselves on some nice list to get our balance in the ledger worked out so that he owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything, but he freely gifts it to us, our salvation by grace and the faith we need to receive it. All we have to do is just receive. And it doesn't work like some engineering manual. If you do A and that leads to B and that accomplishes C. No, there's just some mystery here of God comes in your life and invades your space and works things out to make you alive. And for some of you, it's happening today. And I just ask you to claim it, receive it, cry out to God for it, and it will be yours. After... He talks about us being saved by grace just before this kind of summary of it in verse seven. And after he's given us the picture of raising us up to sit there with Christ, he gives a reason that God does this. In verse seven, he says that, so that in the coming days, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And so how does he display the immeasurable riches his grace and his kindness in us. Well, he continues to work in us. He continues to produce fruit of that work in us because God made us for good works. God made us for good works. We find ourselves back where we began in the 10th verse of Ephesians 2, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. And understanding what this means, it begins with understanding who we are now in Christ. Paul says that we are his workmanship. The Greek word used there is poema. It's where we get our word poem. 
but really in Greek it was used to describe any kind of work of art, any kind of masterpiece that an artist made. And that's the picture that he has for us. We are his workmanship. We're his work of art. We are his masterpiece. But we are not God's masterpiece because of what happened back in Genesis 1 and 2. We're not his masterpiece, his work of art, because he made us in his image. That's just a part of it. We're his masterpiece because of what has happened in our lives that's described in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. We are his masterpiece because of what he has made us now. New creations made alive together with Christ and made for good works. You know, our good works, they don't earn us salvation because before we are saved, we're dead. There's nothing we can do. We can't do any good. It's never enough. And our good works, they don't pay God back for our salvation because it's a gift of his, because of his mercy and his grace and his love. It's too great of a work for us to ever pay back. No, you see, our good works that he's created us for, they are outward signs of an inward reality. We're no longer dead, we're now alive. We're no longer sinners, we're now saints. We're no longer bad, we are now good. And our works display that to the world around us. We now live according to his ways instead of the world's ways. We live according to his rule instead of Satan's rule. We live according to what he wants for our lives instead of what we want. And these good works have always followed the call of God because of his grace, love, and mercy. You can see it clearly in even well, when Jesus calls his first disciples, like in Mark 1, 16 and 17, we read that as he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. There's the call there on their lives to come to Jesus, to follow him, to see what he could do for them, to experience the life he has for them for themselves. But then the, one of the results of that is not only gonna be that they are changed in their lives, but also that they are giving something to do, some good to accomplish that God wants to do through them, for them to be fishers for people. You know, I'm guessing that whenever you were growing up and you were asked what you wanted to be when you grew up, that few of us answered, we want to fish for people. Like, that sounds really good. I know that kids, some of you were just with relatives you don't see a lot. You probably got asked questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You had to come up with some answers. And that was true in my life. Like, at one time I wanted to be an archaeologist. That was just because I really liked the Indiana Jones movies and they looked super awesome. Then I found out that they just teach a lot. And I was like, Nope. Then I wanted to be a pediatrician. I thought being a doctor. At one time I wanted to be an actor and then I wanted to be a writer. Then at 17, uh, and through my study of God's word, he led me to see that he was calling me into ministry of some kind, which I've now been, uh, had my life devoted to ever since then. I devoted my study in college to preparing for ministry, my master's degree to preparing for ministry, have now been in ministry for over a couple of decades. But if I'm honest with you, there's still times in my life now that I ask myself, what do I want to be when I grow up? And of course, because I've been made alive with Christ, the, the version that I ask for myself is like, what does God want me to be when I grow up? What is the good work that he wants to accomplish in and through my life? And Ephesians 2 gives me hope that even though here I am in my 
40s, been doing ministry for decades, that I can still ask that question, what does God want me to do? And I can see that he wants me to do the good works that he's created me for, that he's prepared ahead of time for me to do. He wants to do good in me and he wants to do good through me because it brings him glory, because it accomplishes good in my life, but also because it accomplishes good for the sake of others. That through the good that he is working in me and through me, he is displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness. Makes me think of what Jesus says in Matthew 5 as part of the Sermon on the Mount where he tells them, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He's prepared good works for me to do, for you to do, for his glory, for our good, but also so that others can see those good works, the display of his work in your life, and they too can glorify God. And they too can be made better through being made alive together with Christ. These works are prepared for us to do. All we have to do is do them, to walk in them as we walk with him. So now on this second day of this new year, as we continue to take steps into 2022, let's devote our lives to doing just that.